Thank you, Mary Ellen. It's beautiful. I would ask that you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. We've been in the upper room quite often in the Gospel of Luke during this uh, Advent and Epiphany and Lenten season. Today we're going to, to go over to John, this wonderful interpretive gospel, and we're going to hear how he heard that upper room experience. John chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 31 in just a moment, just reading four verses today. Today we're going to explore a question that seems simple, but it's not. Now the question is this, how do you know if a person is a Christian? How do you know if a person is a Christian? Now on a simple level, of course, the answer is only God knows. It's a very personal relationship that each of us have with God, and there's enough in Scripture itself to keep us from making any kind of proclamations as to who is and who is not a Christian. The Scriptures keep us very humble in relationship to one another, including some amazing statements that Paul makes. But we can't just leave it at that point and say, well, only God knows what a Christian is. We have to, in real life and in discourse and in the way human beings interact, we have to have something that means Christian so that when we're talking about being a Christian, in contrast to like being a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist, uh, Christian means something. It, it has a, 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 a descriptor. Uh, to it. The name has to somehow be agreed upon uh, by larger society. I, of course, like the answer that we're going to read in just a moment that Jesus gives us in this final discourse where he says, by this everyone will know that you are my Christ one, my disciple, if you have love for one another. Or as the song says it, the world will know you are Christians by your love. Now, we would say amen, right? That's, that's a true statement. But as we all know, love itself is a very multifaceted word. And it can mean anything from our enjoyment of pizza to Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Nothing wrong, of course, with loving pizza. I, I do. But that surely is not even remotely the same word when we apply it to this compelling love of Christ that, that drove him to, to be on the cross for us and to pay that ultimate price of sin. Being known for our love, then, must include what is it that we love. It's not just that we love and we love pizza, but rather we love God and we love others and we love ourselves. It's the object of our love that begins in some way to measure what that love is. But even those descriptors have a shortfall. Love of self can simply be narcissism in a very destructive kind of way. Love of others can just be lust, or it can be a codependency. Love of God can be only a, a theological assent, a, a, a belief, not a, an actual loving relationship with the creator and savior and comforter of our lives. So we want to explore this, and it's, it's perhaps an impossible uh, 
understanding to completely uh, get our head around. But we want to look at it from the teachings of Christ and we want to try to understand the whole life that he lived as he demonstrated what love is like. Of course, for all of us as free Methodists, we recognize immediately that our theology is called the theology of love, that love is core to our understanding of God and our understanding of life. And so this is a a very important concept for us to uh, explore. Now, as we've done throughout this season, uh, put yourself once more in the upper room. The night of his betrayal. Judas has just left. He's going to betray him. Jesus only has a little time, he knows, before the soldiers are going to find him up in the garden. And so he goes to that top level teaching of what he wants to make sure we understand before he leaves us. So John chapter 13, we're going to start with the 31st verse and go through the 35th. The the NRSV translators call this the new commandment. Now when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, And God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful uh, that you, the God of love, created a world, a universe that reflects that love. And we're so thankful that you made it possible for us, created in your image, to love as you love. But we recognize that it's it's difficult for us for a whole variety of reasons. And so today, as we explore this, this definitive descriptor of Christian faith, And as we open ourselves to being described in that way, we would ask that your spirit would speak to each of us, convict us where we need conviction, affirm us where we need affirmation, lead us in this journey. And of course, we'll give you all the praise. Amen. For those of you who don't know Chandra Malampali, He is, of course, a member of our congregation. Comes, I think, to second service. I can never keep track of where everybody comes. But he is also a professor of history at Westmont. He is also, and you might not know this, a seminary-trained leader. He's one of those uh, unique individuals who is both equipped for the academy and equipped uh, for the church. His specialty is the history of India, And a few years ago, he wrote one of the most fascinating books that I've ever read. And it touches 
on the topic that we're exploring together today. It happened in the 1800s, a true story, where a very wealthy Indian businessman died. And the court of India, which had decided to have kind of a two-tiered justice system uh, using Hindu law and using British law, had to decide whether, in fact, this man who died, Matthew Abraham, was a Christian. If he was a Christian, then his inheritance laws were different than if he was Hindu. If he was Hindu under this dual system, then the undivided brother, as it's called, would inherit his fortune and would continue on caring for the business. If he was a Christian, then his widow would inherit, as happens in British law. Now, it's very complex. The, the book is, is a fascinating read, looking into culture and uh, all having to do with legal systems and legal jargon and legal uh, um, logistic uh, thought. It also has to do with gender and patriarchy and what happened in ancient India as well as what happens today. But the part that you'll find fascinating for our study today was a rather disturbing description of what it means to be a Christian. They had to decide in a court of law, what does a Christian look like and what would they do, what would they not do? And they needed to measure it in legal terms. No court, of course, could measure love. And they can't have any kind of measurement of that. I would argue that they could have looked at compassion and justice and caring and those kind of measurable acts to evaluate, but they did not. That was not on their list. What the deemed what the court deemed to be true evidence of Christian faith were 12 different behaviors. And they believed they identified a person as being a Christian over against being a Hindu. Here's what the court decided. I'm only going to give you a few of the 12. But number six, that Christians are members of the English Protestant Church and attend only the English services performed by Europeans. They give their children English names at baptism and bring them up in the East Indian culture, the British culture in every respect. They receive Europeans and persons of, of uh, European habits and dress as guests in their houses, but no others. Twelfth, they studiously avoid all social and familial intercourse with those specially designated as natives, that is, persons who wear native dress. Now, of course, for our sensitivities today, especially in, in uh, free Methodist circles, that entire list is alarming to me that that, that would be uh, any kind of definition of what it means to be a Christian. But it made me stop and think, if we were to have to prove in our court of law using legal jargon and legal uh, argument that we are a Christian, what would be the evaluation of that? How would the state decide uh, that we are or we are not a Christian? One of the things I'm extremely thankful for, and I could give you case after case just that I've experienced in my own ministry, but one of the things I'm extremely thankful for is the separation of church and state. 
uh, that we do not reduce Christianity to what the state requires in terms of legal definitions or even cultural expressions. Uh, this question of who is a Christian is not a state issue, and the state has very wisely kept out of it and uh, not uh, defined it. But that brings us back to the question, because it is in our area of responsibility to say, what is a Christian? And if we claim to be Christians, then what does that mean? How do we answer it, at least for ourselves, if not for the courts? Now, it's obvious that the first attempt to answer any kind of question could most easily be done by saying what it is not. And we could look at, okay, if love is the definition of what it means to be a Christian, then it's fairly easy to, ne to uh, say the opposite, that it is not hate that if we are hating, then we are not being Christian. Perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of this uh, current election cycle has been the use of the word hate and Christian in the same sentence. Uh, unless that sentence is something like, Christians hate betrayal but love the betrayer, then something has gone wrong with the way our culture thinks about what it means to be a follower of Christ. <coughs> if Jesus had had any inclination to hate, it would have been at that moment when Judas left to betray him. He could have said, have nothing to do with Judas. Shun him, reject him, discard him. He is nothing to us now. He's now an enemy. He did not. In the moment of his greatest human betrayal, when one of his twelve chosen, the closest people he had in life, when he betrayed him, Jesus immediately taught on love and immediately taught what our response is to the betrayer. So love is not hate. And when we feel hate in ourselves or when we see hate within our Christian brothers and sisters, it needs to be brought under the love of Christ where love is our descriptor and not these uh, negative kinds of attitudes or feelings and that we need to pray for those who persecute us or say all manner of evil against us. But if love is not hate or, or some similar kind of negative, then what is it? Well, here, Jesus is extremely helpful and that's why this upper room discourse is so important to us he says that it is a commandment. Now immediately, we realize that removes it from the love of pizza kind of category, right? It's not about what I like or what you like or what you dislike or I dislike. It's not even about what we want. It is something that is founded in the very nature of God. And to live in Christ is to obey the command to love. Now that must mean that the Ten Commandments, the original commandments, must also be about love. But they must be stated in the negative in that sense because it doesn't speak about it in terms of love. But it is true that love doesn't lie. Love doesn't steal. Love doesn't kill. Love doesn't betray a marriage vow. Love doesn't covet what another has. Love doesn't dishonor parents. Love puts God first. Love doesn't belittle 
God. But it's clear that love is, is so much more than just not doing hurtful things to God or others or even to ourselves. Love is an active obedience, a great shalom. That's why the peace of Christ is such an important descriptor. It's an active obedience of doing helpful, compassionate, just, generous, courageous things. Love cares about the positive well-being of another, including the betrayer, including the enemy. Now that is seldom a feeling. A human, as human beings, we can be so filled with fear or disgust or, or hatred that we literally want an enemy to die or at least to write them off that they don't matter. They're on the other side of the line or the border or the wall that we have built. Our fear has created it. But it is in that moment most clearly that the command applies, that we are to love them regardless of how we feel toward them. That love is not a feeling, but it's an obedience a new way of being, a new command, Jesus says, that I give, a new commandment. Jesus continues and explains that this is possible because he has loved us. And so in just the same way as he has loved us, he wants us to love others. Now immediately, of course, when we stop and we think, okay, well, how has Jesus loved us there are two concepts that come that are overarching in the way Jesus lived his life. The first is his incarnation. The second is his crucifixion. The incarnation was the willingness by our Lord to lower himself from living in the splendor of the divine and become one of us. C.S. Lewis has a descriptor that I've always liked in understanding the depth of love that the Incarnation describes. He says that God becoming human would be like us becoming a slug. Would you or I, out of love, let go of our human life to save the life of a slug? Amazing love. How can it be? Charles Wesley says it. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. So if we are to love as God loves, then no one is beneath us or beneath our willingness to join with them, to walk with them, to laugh with them, sit with them, eat with them, care for them. At the core of our faith, Jesus modeled such an infinite love, such a selfless love, and he lived it here just as he's asking us to do. And he lived it to the point of death. There was no limitation to his willingness to love us. The crucifixion, if it means anything, it means Jesus loves you and Jesus loves me. And he will do whatever is needed to help us in our broken 
and death-bound lives. If we love as Jesus loves, then we wisely and thoughtfully, but without limiting how far we will go, we will sacrifice for the well-being of the other. Now that confronts deeply this self-protective, self-centeredness that is such the plague of humanity. But I don't know about you, but when I, I truly stop and I think about the depth of the way Jesus loved and what he's asking me to do, I realize that my, my Christianity that I've lived these 40-some years is only at the first level, almost a miniature step toward what God is asking me to do, what he's asking you to do. To call myself a Christian and to live this new commandment of love is so far beyond my human capability that it compels me to prayer, to worship, to service, to study, to try in some way to get a grasp of what it means for God to love me that much and to want me to love that much, to truly enter into the lives of others in such a way that they matter and that they matter deeply to me and deeply to all of us who are Christ ones. God has led me to places where I am increasingly uncomfortable, to places where, in fact, I cannot be there without God being before me and making the way and helping me to express a love that's worthy of the name Christian. I believe the world is waiting for that love to be what it means to be a Christian, that when they say Christian, that's the image that comes because that's who we are. That's how we live. That's what we do. That's what we exist. They'll know then that this is something far more than just a legal description or a theological position or even a philosophical idea or a political descriptor or any of the things that have hijacked our, our use of the word. It will be reality itself beyond all descriptors. Let's once more hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's spend time with the one who is willing to be incarnate and sacrificial and encourages us to be as well. Let's listen and respond to what God has said to each of us. <laughs>